Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor James Bashkin, who is a professor of chemistry and biochemistry at the University of Missouri, St. Louis. Before he was an NIH postdoctoral fellow at Harvard, uh, before joining Monsanto Corporate Research, which later became Pharmacia and then Pfizer. His recent research interest has been at the interface of chemistry and biology in areas such as chemical genomics, the design of antiviral and anti-cancer agents, uh, and green chemistry. Welcome, Jim. Thanks very much for having me, Kel. I want to start with a, a, topical, a topical idea that you're pursuing, and uh, the project you have is inexpensive sterilization of PPE for the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and you say that you will make inexpensive portable reagent-free sterilizers for N95 masks and other personal protective equipment. Could you talk a little bit about, um, about that project? Well, that's a um, collaboration with KWJ Engineering and Spec Sensors. Yeah. And um, so um, um, we're still waiting for funding uh, on that project. And um, so uh, I guess I, I'm not sure. We can get into details, okay. I'm at liberty to say about that, except that um, KWJ and SPEC sensors have a great deal of expertise in electrochemical um, uh, detection, and um, that turns out to be very useful for um, making a 12-volt-based um, uh, decontamination chamber that can be uh, anywhere from five gallons on up in size. And so the lowest size would cost around $300 and uh, would be able to uh, sterilize um, on the order of, of 10 to 10 or more masks. At, at one time. At one time, yeah. right. And um, the, um, 
and so it's the kind of thing that any doctor's office or ambulance or police station or um, fire station could have. Um, and um, the current sterilization uh, equipment that's available is for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part, very expensive and limited to large hospitals where uh, contaminated masks have to be collected and brought to a centralized location. So uh, we're hoping that this would be a way to bring um, uh, sterilization equipment to uh, a much broader audience and um, hopefully also to developing countries uh, where things could be run with solar power and th that sort of thing. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, th that's, you know, um, one of the issues obviously we ran into is uh, the availability of N95 masks early on uh, and the lack of PPE. Right. And uh, seems like um, that was uh, sort of taken care of till we thought uh, numbers are going down, uh, but now numbers are exponentially rising again. So I think this will be a big issue, um, not only in kind of wave one that we are in, but also potentially a wave two that might be coming behind it, right? Right, exactly. And um, the, um, I, mean, I, I was in, the hospital uh, for uh, a necessary surgical procedure uh, while in the early stages of phase one and the nurses there were reusing surgical masks for three shifts in a row. Mm. And um, apparently they had to militate to even get access to those masks and several nurses quit uh, because they weren't being given masks. Uh, uh, one of the local hospitals until they finally, uh, until policies were finally changed. And that was pretty early on in the process. But um, as you say, uh, supplies became less limited, uh, but now problems are arising again with all kinds of things from the uh, testing, test kit supply chain to uh, PPE. Yeah, and and the, if the if the price range for uh, something like this sort of distributed um, uh, sterilizing equipment, uh, that's going to be a, a great help for developing countries, right? Uh, Brazil is is uh, pushing on two million cases. India is reaching one million cases, and uh, doesn't appear to be uh, either one of those countries have hit the hit the peak yet. Absolutely, and neither have we. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but let's jump into you know some of your major research areas and interests. Uh, so your main research, Jim, correct me if I'm wrong, involves the chemical synthesis and biochemical testing of sequence-specific DNA binding molecules uh, designed to control gene expression. And uh, more recently, you have been working toward prevention of cervical cancer. Um, now, cervical cancer, most most uh, types, is caused by um, human papilloma virus, uh, HPV 16 and 18, and um, some of the agents that your team um, has designed um, successfully eliminate HPV 16 DNA from human cells and culture. So this is this is essentially a cure uh, for somebody who who is uh, who has the problem. Uh, well, it's not really a cure, um, but uh, these are 
designed as antiviral drugs um, that would be treatments for the disease. And okay. so um, the, um, um, and all, or, all or almost all antiviral drugs uh, are designed to control the disease uh, that they um, uh, affect rather than uh, uh, cure the disease. There aren't very many cases where cures are actually affected, although they occasionally happen. Yeah. Um, but, um, but the point is that not very many people are, are being vaccinated worldwide. And, um, and uh, even in this country, the vaccination numbers are are not as high as we would like them to be. And furthermore, in addition to HPV 16 and 18, uh, there are at least 15 um, total types of HPV that are um, recognized as high risk and uh, that cause uh, cervical and other cancers. And, um, and um, HPV 16 and 18 account for about 70% of cervical cancer, but the remaining 30% are caused by uh, HPV 31 and other um, um, so-called minor uh, high-risk forms of HPV, but they're not minor to the people who are infected with them. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And uh, so for patients who have infections, uh, it would be nice to have a drug therapy that um, can um, can treat those infections. Uh, it's been shown in the clinic that the um, progress of uh, towards cervical cancer is linked to the amount of HPV 16 in somebody's system or the viral titer. Yeah, and so um, if we uh, extrapolate from that and say that's the case for the other high-risk HPVs, if we can drop the viral titer down to a very low level uh, with an antiviral drug, then um, we have the chance of, of uh, greatly limiting the uh, and maybe completely slowing the progress to, uh, to cancer for um, these um, uh, pre-cancerous uh, patients. Right, right. Um, my, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Jim. So um, HPV, uh, there are vaccines for HPV, both a male and female variety. Um, and um, as you say, uh, it's not widely or broadly applied. Uh, and And because of that, uh, people get infected with HPV, and the hypothesis, or or if it is completely known that if HPV is in the system for a long period of time, uh, it can lead to cervical cancer. Right? Is that the idea? Yes, that's right. Okay. Uh, and so, and, and um, HPV infections are are extremely common but um, um, only about 10% of those infections uh, remain as persistent infections, or, or maybe even less than 10% remain as persistent infections. 
um, many people clear the infections with their uh, immune responses to the virus. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, not everybody does uh, through some combination of their immune system and the particular virus, that, the version of the virus they've been infected with. Right. Um, but in addition, um, HPV has been showing up in a wide range of other cancers, including head and neck cancers, uh, such as oral cancers. Hmm. And so um, there's a, a really um, a vast number of in, uh, increasing uh, head and neck cancer cases uh, directly uh, in which uh, HPV-16 is directly implicated. And yeah. so um, we don't have a, a nice testing system like we like the pap smear that we uh, for oral cases um, that's been developed, although the pap smear is not a perfect test by any means, it saves a lot of lives and is, has been responsible for uh, a decrease in the death rate in developed countries uh, due to um, cervical cancer. Right, right. And there, there have been different conjectures, right? So um, cancer is caused by virus, cancer is caused by chemicals or genetic abnormalities or mutations. What is the dominant position now um, looking at cancers more broadly? Um, what do we believe uh, cancer is caused by? Well, I, I think it's all of the above. Okay. And um, the... Um, all of the above contribute to all, all of the things you mentioned contribute to risk, to risk factors, yeah. and um, the uh, more risk factors one accumulates, the, the higher the risk one has of developing cancer. But um, certain risk factors are, are particularly serious, and um, high risk um, HPV infections are 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 among those uh, mm -hmm. that um, can lead very direct, well, that that can and do lead very directly to, um, uh, or relatively directly to cancer. Yeah, yeah. And, and so the the antiviral agents that, that you have designed, uh, if it is able to completely eliminate HPV-16, uh, somebody who hasn't developed any cancer yet, if it is able to completely eliminate HPV-16, then that individual's risk of a virus-driven cancer could be substantially eliminated. Yes. Now, we've never seen 100% elimination, but we've seen many, many fold elimination. You know, um, so we, and I, I should point out that we did not do the um, virology for this project ourselves. The virology was done by uh, Chris Fisher and Terry Edwards. Yeah. And um, so um, they uh, made all the, um, they, they did all the science related to measuring the effectiveness of the compounds and uh, were um, Chris Fisher was heavily involved in designing the entire project with me um, uh, from the very start. But um, um, but what we see is um, 
that the viral genome of, of HPV, whether it's 16 or 18 or 31, is destroyed, is, is cut by human enzymes after our uh, compounds are added to cells that can contain the circular viral genome of DNA. The compounds don't have any effect on cells once HPV has integrated into the host cells. So uh, that's part of the life cycle of HPV that the circular DNA opens up to a linear piece and inserts into human DNA. But that can take 15 to 20 years oh, wow. to happen. And um, so we have a window of time in which uh, antiviral therapy uh, is appropriate. And, um, and that's when our compounds or any other anti-HPV antiviral uh, would be uh, effective. And how long are typically, how long are these therapies typically? Well, depends. <laughs> our work has been done in, in cell culture and tissue okay. culture. Yeah. And um, so in, um, in um, 48 hours, we see decreases um, of as much as 99% of the amount of viral DNA with a single dose of compound. So these will be going into the clinic in the, in the future? Um, well, I hope so, but we need, we need to uh, obtain the funding to scale up uh, to do um, the last of the preclinical studies and uh, then uh, try to um, file an investigational new drug uh, application. Okay, okay. And, and uh, all these agents, I know, Jim, you have a particular focus on polyamide. So all of these, all of these agents are uh, antiviral polyamides? Um, not, no, actually, um, there's a, um, there's a selection, um, of sorts. Um, so some of the, po the, uh, polyamides are antiviral towards, uh, small double-stranded DNA tumor viruses, mm -hmm. and they seem to be somewhat broad spectrum in that activity. But um, um, they have to be, relative, for the most part, uh, have, they have to be relatively large molecules. Mm -hmm. um, and um, we've seen antiviral activity against an, a, a negative strand RNA virus related to respiratory syncytial virus uh, with a smaller polyamide. But um, um, the small polyamides have not um, typically been active against um, HPV or other um, um, double-strand DNA tumor viruses. And um, these, the large molecules, which have, say, 14 rings in them uh, or more, uh, are fairly high in molecular weight, and a lot of traditional medicinal chemists think that they would never get into cells. But uh, we found that there's an active uptake mechanism for them with at least uh, many cell types, including the cells that 
the, the human skin cells that are infected by HPV. And so um, uh, they get in quite effectively to the, um, um, to the cells that carry HPV infections of a high-risk type. And um, they are um, therefore able to, um, to bind to the viral DNA, which is what we believe is the mechanism of action. Um, and um, then there's some molecular details that we have yet to work out about how that um, event, that binding event triggers the uh, cell response to um, um, recognize the viral DNA as foreign and destroy it. Normally, HPV is very good at hiding from the uh, uh, DNA damage response and uh, and co-opting the DNA damage response to um, help the virus replicate uh, in the case of HPV mm-hmm. and related viruses. Is uh, is COVID nineteen an RNA based virus? Yes, it is. And so, so th- this um, th- it also has applications in single strand RNA based viruses too, right? Uh, we have found one example of, of um, a compound that's active against uh, uh, an RNA, a single-strand RNA virus. Yes. Okay. Okay. And and that's something that you are you're currently working on, or it's too early to. We are. Uh, okay. We're trying to find additional examples. Um, so uh, one example uh, wasn't enough to um, uh, encourage the NIH to. Uh, fund us to look at it in more detail. Although we have our collaborator there is Ming Wo at um, Georgia State University, and uh, his group was able to crystallize uh, the nucleocapsid-like particle of the virus with RNA, single with the uh, uh, RNA-like uh, genome in the center and the nucleocapsid protein particles surrounding that RNA and our compound bound to that um, RNA protein complex. And uh, so we can see evidence of um, the potential mechanism of action from that crystal structure and also from biophysical studies they did showing that the melting temperature of the particle is increased or the, the particle is stabilized by the interactions between our compound and the RNA and the protein. And as far as I know, it's the first ex- example, sorry to interrupt you, it's the first example of, a, of a, one of these polyamides uh, binding to RNA and also the first example of one binding to a protein. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, polyamides, so th- these are, um, I would imagine, highly scalable compounds, right? I mean, if, if you find activity and if you find, you know, to be efficacious from a manufacturing perspective, it shouldn't really create a big issue, right? Um, yeah, that's that's pretty much the case. So we've scaled up two compounds to a 10 gram scale mm-hmm. and uh, use those for animal, animal testing for sa- safety studies um, for preclinical work. And um, um, it's making them as a is a bit like peptide synthesis. Yeah. Um, however, there is one major difference: the um, the 
they are based on amino acids like um, peptides are, but the amino acids used to make the parole imidazole polyamides are for the most part heterocyclic amino acids uh, based on um, nitrogen-containing heterocycles. Mm -hmm. And I know that's starting to get a little technical, but what it means is that the amino groups of the amino acids don't react very well in the amide coupling reactions compared to, say, the alpha amino groups of, um, of amino acids used to make peptides. Um, the, the alpha amino groups of our, the common amino acids are very good nucleophiles compared to the uh, amino groups we work with, which are on electron withdrawing um, heterocycles containing nitrogen. And um, so um, we have to use a lot more um, excess equivalents uh, we have, we have of um, reagents to uh, get good coupling efficiencies. Oh, yeah. And uh, so um, that makes the process of scaling up uh, more complex than it would look like on paper. Hmm. Nevertheless, it is a scalable process and um, one of the things that we do is make um, um, is join two building blocks together in solution beforehand, and then um, add the building blocks in twos instead of one at a time to improve the efficiency of the um, uh, solid phase Merrifield type um, synthesis that we do carry out. Yeah. I want to jump into another uh, recent paper that you have, Jim. Uh, it's about an early form of skin cancer. Mm -hmm. um, could you talk a little bit about that? I'm sorry, which? which... Uh, it's the Bowen's, Bowen's disease. Um, oh, yeah. that, yes, that's, um, um, that's a patent. OK, OK. And um, so um, uh, I'm working with. Uh, a uh, gentleman named uh, Dr. Justice Obi, who is uh, an MD and uh, uh, a pharmacist, and he, he works in New York as a pharmacist. And um, yeah. he has discovered, he discovered that uh, chloroquine has um, anti-HPV activities and the NIH uh, sp sponsored tests run at a number of universities to um, do uh, cell culture and tissue culture assays to uh, see if uh, they could confirm or deny the um, uh, observations that he'd made anecdotally. And um, um, those tests confirmed at the molecular biology and DNA level uh, what he'd observed by eye, and um, um, and so he has used the um, this um, medication, which has been in the news quite a lot lately. Yeah. Um, uh, in off-label treatments for uh, people suffering from very a variety of HPV-derived diseases, mm -hmm. including. Uh, uh, Bowen's disease, which is uh, a um, 
precancerous uh, and then later cancerous uh, skin condition that's very slow progressing uh, type of cancer. And um, uh, he treated uh, several people with this condition and um, their condition completely cleared up. So um, he's formulated uh, chloroquine to be used as a mouthwash and uh, as a topical cream and gel for both internal and uh, use in um, uh, internal vaginal uh, cervical use and um, anal use and also uh, external use on genital warts. So we have a patent on that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember uh, chloroquine was used um, sort of an anti-malaria drug, right? Uh, it has been around for a long time, isn't it? Yes, that's right. That's yeah, so right. I, I remember, you know, when you go to tropical areas, you, you used to take it uh, just as a preventative um, a measure. And, uh, and now I guess we are finding a lot of uses for it in, in elsewhere. Right. So... Um... We don't have a complete mechanism of action for it, but it turns out that chloroquine is in more, well, it's in about 20 clinical trials right now as an, in combination therapy as an anti-cancer drug. Mm -hmm. And um, the, um, um, and one of the effects that it has is to, um, uh, to reestablish concentrations of um, a, a tumor suppressor protein that it turns out um, uh, HPV uh, gets rid of. Yeah. And um, so it may be that the... Um, tumor suppressor protein is in fact um, is in fact um, uh, turned on by yeah. chloroquine and this interferes with the life cycle of um, of HPV mm. and that leads to um, the um, the loss of um, um, viability of the life cycle for HPV. So P53 is the major is the tumor suppressor protein, and um, the one of the main oncogenes of um, HPV known as E6, or and it's and it's gene product of the E6 protein. Yeah. Um, causes uh, P53 to be ubiquitinolated and um, degraded in the proteasome. So um, ubiquitin is a molecular signature that's used to tag proteins for degradation. And uh, so there's basically no tumor suppressor protein in HPV-infected cells. And um, the fact that um, chloroquine can reestablish p53 synthesis in tumor cells and cause regression of the tumors has led to its use in uh in anti-cancer uh trials and 
um, and it, that may be why it's um, effective against HPV also. But mm. uh, that's speculation. We don't have real data to uh, uh, tell us whether that's the, the true mechanism. Yeah, yeah, but it's encouraging um, because the effects are uh, effects appear to be there, right? And yeah. HPV uh, driven, uh, some of these HPV driven diseases. Um, I I know Jim. Uh, the one other area that you have a lot of interest in is uh, is this environmentally benign uh, organic chemistry, known as green chemistry. Yes. Um, so so I know that you know Pfizer. Um, Folks at Pfizer have been very interested in it when I was there in the late nineties. Uh, what's the what's the state of the art in uh, in green chemistry now? Well, um, the, um, the the state of the art really is to um, consider uh, the principles of green chemistry: um, atom economy, energy economy, um, um, waste stream and uh, to try to um, consider those principles whenever any manufacturing is, um, is taken online or before it's taken online so that uh, processes are as uh, atom efficient as possible, as energy efficient as possible, and that the generation of uh, harmful waste streams is, uh, is eliminated or, or minimized as much as possible. Yeah. And, um, and, and that includes um, minimizing the use of solvents that are harmful, um, both because they're fire hazards uh, and they're hazardous to the workers, but also because um, um, uh, in many cases they end up in, um, in water treatment facilities and may or may not be completely dealt with um, and, uh, um, by those water treatment facilities, um, at least initially. So um, there are a lot of people who are concerned with this in the commodity chemicals area and the pharmaceutical area, but still probably not nearly enough is put into practice because of the timelines involved in, hmm. uh, in commercializing things. Um, and it's very hard to rethink a synthesis of a pharmaceutical uh, for scale up um, when one is rushing to make samples for clinical trials. Yeah. And so um, one of the things that I hope is that um, chemists, uh, organic chemists at the, at the bench will start using greener methods in their um, daily uh, discovery chemical reactions so that um, the the syntheses that need to be scaled up will already have green uh, bits built into them, uh, green uh, building blocks built into them uh, when it comes time to scale things up. But I think we're a ways away from that because expedience seems to win out over, um, over other methods um, in the discovery phase. Everything's about speed at that stage. Yeah. I mean, at the very highest level, it's sort of a cost minim minimization problem, right? So, I, but I so I wondered, um, cost meaning you know overall cost uh, of production, uh, all externalized costs. So I wondered if there are computational techniques, 
uh, maybe some AI type techniques that could be deployed in this area to get some guidance as to what might be optimum? There are computational techniques that people have developed that um, that are um, pretty pretty effective. Um, the, and um, and the fact is that the process uh, I worked on with Mike Stern and uh, Roger Rains and others at uh, Jim Allman at Monsanto and Solutia for um, uh, rubber chemicals intermediates in the uh, 1990s actually ended up with a much less expensive process than the one it replaced um, and uh, eliminated waste dramatically. So that's sort of a textbook case where, um, you know, some people might say, oh, you know, worrying about the environment always costs industry more money. But <laughs> a case where it actually made industry a lot of money and allowed uh, one company to uh, essentially dominate the, the uh, or at least uh, one company and those companies who had access to the same technology to dominate the globe um, and bring down the, or control the price uh, and eliminate this 99% of the waste that was associated with the old chemistry. So yeah. sometimes it, it just takes an, um, starting from scratch, um, to looking at a new, looking at a chemical process with uh, a new set of eyes and a new set of priorities. And um, a lot of the bad actors are chlorobenzenes or other halogenated compounds um, because they put a lot of salt into waste streams and uh, that's ultimately harmful uh, to um, um, the um, uh, to things that live in aqueous waste streams to the entire um, biosphere and um, and we were able to eliminate that salt and um, and um, also you know cut costs yeah. really substantially. Um, because we never had to make the chlorobenzenes in the first place just to take the chlorine off later on. And um, so um, it ended up being much less expensive. Yeah, it's counterintuitive, right? That's why sometimes, you know, uh, people don't go into it. Um, but it's similar things have been seen in, you know, in manufacturing uh, where you design in quality aspects very early in the process uh you know people say well, it's going to be costly to do so but ultimately if you look at the entire process uh you actually minimize cost that way if, if you do it uh, systematically and programmatically uh, but it's counterintuitive for decision makers that's the issue that's right and you know the 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 thing about it well it really depends depends on whether we're talking about commodity chemicals or pharmaceuticals because the big cost in, or one of the big costs in pharmaceutical research is all of the failed programs yeah. and um, as you know and um, so um, the speed at with which one can test compounds go through examples and uh, decide whether they're good or bad to, and worth moving on with or, or need to be discarded is a critical factor. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, um, that is the primary motivating factor in, um, 
governing decisions uh, for pharmaceutical research, at least of certain kinds. Um, but um, uh, people who um, put well, but people who are looking at commodity chemicals um, and who may want to retool their their yeah. parts um, uh, have to consider the capital costs of um, retooling a, a facility versus the environmental savings and ultimate uh, total cost savings. And um, sometimes it doesn't take a lot of uh, capital improvement to put in a new process, and other times it does. It just depends on the details. Yeah, I wonder, Jim, you know, um, I mean, you have a lot of experience uh, inside pharmaceutical companies, too. And I wonder, from an organizational perspective, uh, do you think a specialized green chemistry group inside the inside a pharmaceutical company who almost runs uh, things in parallel uh, as, as the compound progresses, um, do you think something like that from an organizational perspective could work better? Well, groups like that do exist. I mean, I know Pfizer has a, at various times had a group like that. Um, and I think that they can um, contribute a great deal. So um, it's just a, um, the, I think the, the problem is that um, there can be maybe, you know, 20 projects going on. Each right. has 20 compounds they're investigating. And then all of a sudden... Um, you just don't have the resources. <laughs> you know, there, you know yeah. five of those projects move forward to the next stage, each with one compound very quickly. And um, uh, trying to... Um, make an impact in a very short time on um, how that synthesis occurs is, is not so easy yeah. because, because changing things at that stage can um, change the, the purity of the molecule, the impurity profile, um, and all kinds of things that are starting to be established. And um, so, yes, I mean, those groups can have a have a large role to play but um how often they get to play it varies on the details of each project right right uh, so in conclusion jim uh if you look forward uh four or five years um which area do you think has you know from all the research um uh, things that you're working on uh which area do you think has the maximum potential um you know to to go to the next stage or uh, more interesting discoveries? Well, um, I think that both of our HPV-related projects uh, have great potential. I mean, chloroquine has a lot of potential because the drug is extremely cheap and readily available, and yeah. we have over 100 anecdotal, probably about 200 at this point, anecdotal patients who have been treated um, and we have DNA tests backing up the um, uh, success of the treatment in uh, a number of cases, but that's not the same as a double-blind clinical trial. So 
um, you know, it really needs to be subjected to a proper um, clinical trial. And we're trying to raise the funding to do that. And um, um, I think that our other uh, HPV compounds, uh, anti-HPV compounds also have a lot of potential um, and they have potential in other areas too against other uh, double-strand DNA uh, tumor viruses such as the polyoma viruses which are uh, important for organ transplant patients, uh, bone marrow transplant patients and uh, patients along those lines. So um, there we might be able to treat bone marrow uh, before it's um, transplanted into a patient, especially for juvenile bone marrow transplant patients. And um, um, I was um, hoping to get started on looking at that kind of thing uh, when um, the uh, COVID-19 crisis hit and um, everybody became preoccupied with other things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's exciting uh, because it sounds like it's a platform that you could take in a lot of different directions. Yes, I, I think so. And um, obviously we need to do more testing, but um, uh, that's what, that's certainly the hope. Yeah, yeah. This has been excellent, Jim. Uh, thanks so much for spending time with me. It's and good. Uh, good luck with, uh, with all the research. Thank you very much, Gil. It's, uh, I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.